God, you are, you are great. How great? Beyond comprehension. Far above any ability to describe. But we want to give our voice to that truth. That you are a great God. We give you our praise this morning. We enter into your gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the God that you are. For who you are and what you do. Praise, giving you praise that is worthy of your name. We long that it would, that it would bless you. Somehow I, I know that that is, that is true, that there is no other song that you prefer to hear than the song of the redeemed. We don't have voices that, well, some of us do, but I know I don't have a voice of an angel. And they are singing around your throne. Many of them constantly, I believe. But we are joining as the song of the redeemed here. Giving you praise, Lord. I know that pleases you. Thank you for the privilege of doing that. Not only does it please you, it does something in us to do that. Lifts us above and beyond this world and its troubles, Lord. Helps us focus on the fact that you're the reality. That whatever our situation is, you're the reality. You're the answer. You're the solution. You're the God over it. And I know, Lord, that there are many here this morning that need a God, a God of grace and a God of glory and a God of power and a God of healing and a God of love and compassion to do a miracle in their life. But you're here. You're here. And you are all of that and much more. I know that you're here because of the stated truth of your word that when we come gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as believers in him, that you, through your spirit, that you are right there right there among us. Have your way today, God. Wherever there is brokenness, invade it. God, wherever there is turmoil, speak peace to it. Wherever there is fear, calm it. Lord, you're able, you are able. Glorify yourself. 
by manifesting your presence and your power right here this morning through answers to this prayer here and through the unleashing, the proclamation of your timely, timeless, living and active, powerful word. God, open minds today to grab a hold of and open hearts today to embrace deeply the truth that you want to share. Oh, please keep me out of the way. Exalt your name. Exalt your Son, Heavenly Father. Holy Spirit, I ask you to fill me right now with a task at hand. Father, I am aware of my frailties and my sin, revealing them to me. Even now, I confess those to you. And I believe that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that. And now, Lord, I want to be a vessel used under your honor. Fill me with your spirit. Proclaim your word as only you can. In the name of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, please open up your Bibles there. We have been dealing with a great doctrine. We have been looking at this doctrine and examining it from various sides, various aspects. The doctrine is the doctrine of our union, of the believer's union with the Lord Jesus Christ at salvation. And we have talked about how that union in the first part of Romans chapter 6, that union is a threefold union. That when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are united with Him, Paul says, in His death, we are crucified with Him. And secondly, we are united with Him in His burial. And then thirdly, we are united with Him in His resurrection. And we spent some time talking about just the reality, the incredible reality of what that means, that we are brand new creations with an entirely new identity. And what Paul is talking about here, if I could just kind of put it under an overall banner, 
related to this doctrine of our union with Christ, that what he is doing here in chapter 6 is that he is telling us that we have an entirely new relationship to sin than we had before we were saved. And so he is explaining what this new relationship that we have to sin is. And the way he introduced that was to identify a heresy that some were attaching to his teaching. And the heresy, again, in review, was this, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul, you preach free grace. In fact, you say that grace superabounds over sin and that when sin increases, the grace of God comes in in a mighty, a powerful, a superabounding way in the life of the believer to win the day. And so Paul, here's the heresy, and so Paul, based upon that, well, the obviously conclusion then is that here's what I should do. I should sin more so the grace can increase more. I mean, I'm actually going to be doing God a favor. I'm going to sin more, and then the superabounding grace of God is going to rush in and bring him more glory and gain more victory. And so Paul is refuting that ridiculous conclusion. And he is refuting it by talking about who we are. And now he's going to plunge deeper into this doctrine of our union with Christ. And we're going to use as the jump-off point here in the plunge with him, verse 5. That's where we're going to pick it up. Verse 5. Now, before I read that, let me make a few comments here about the extended treatment that Paul gives regarding this doctrine of our union with Christ. Why? He really began it clearly, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And he has carried it through the last half of chapter 5. He is carrying it into the first half of chapter 6. And in fact, he's going to carry it forward all the way to the end of 6 and into the 7 and to the end of 7 and into 8 and throughout chapter 8. Why such an extended treatment on this doctrine? I'm going to give you two answers to that. I'm going to give you an answer right from Paul himself from the text, and I'm going to give you an answer right from your life. So here's the answer right from the text. Paul says in chapter 6, the same word three times in verse 3, in verse 6, and verse 9. He uses the word know. Verse 3, do you not know? Verse 6, we know that. Verse 9, we know that. It's obvious here by that redundancy, it's something in the mind of Paul that he is very adamant, very concerned that we would know, that we would grasp. He wants to drive that point home. But it's not just something that he wants us to intellectually grasp. He is wanting us to believe it. 
That's really the emphasis. He's wanting us and not so concerned about the depth of our understanding, but about the firmness of our belief in it. And because of that, he follows that repetition of the word to know in verse 11 with this statement. So you also must consider yourselves. And then he makes a statement about the believer. So the word here, the phrase here, so you must consider yourself, means this. It means to take into account. It means to calculate something out. And so Paul is saying, we know, we know, we know. He's stating this truth about our union. And then he comes to verse 11 and he says, and because of what you know, then you need to calculate out a result or a truth from that. And what he wants you to calculate out is the truth about you. It's a truth that he's wanting to teach about you. Paul is saying here, by his emphasis, Christians, believe what God has said about you. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then he comes to verse 13, and he gives the byproduct. He gives the outflow, if you know, 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 and from that you calculate and draw the right conclusion, then here is your only real, logical, reasonable response. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin. Do not present your members to sin. Other translators write, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Others say, do not yield your members to sin. Paul repeats this idea here, this wording here, in a variety of forms many, many times in chapter 6, 7, and 8. But I want you to see the development. It's really a hinge point for what we're going to cover today. Paul is saying, know this truth, know this truth, know this truth. So that you can consider yourselves. So that you can consider a truth about God that he has made about you if you're a believer. In order that you would not give in to sin. So why the emphasis? Why such a long, detailed treatment of this doctrine? It's because of this. The goal is for you to live holy. And the way to get there is for you to understand the truth. Is for you to grasp the reality of what God has said about you and draw some clear, accurate conclusions to that that will set you up to live out the way that He wants you to live. In other words, that your learning is going to influence your living. Second 
reason for the extended treatment. A reason right here in your life, and I'm including me in that, in my life. Far too often, we are Saturday Christians. We live between two days, between Friday and Sunday. More specifically, between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Here's what I mean by that. We have come through Friday. We have come to the cross of Christ and we have placed our faith in Christ and we believe, absolutely believe in the cleansing and the canceling power of His death. And not only that, we feel as we receive His forgiveness, we feel the peace that we have with God, this relationship that we have with God because of that faith. We're living in Saturday, come through Friday, but we never, far too often, we stop short of Sunday. And what is Sunday? Sunday is resurrection power. Sunday is a new life. Sunday is more than just a cleansed past. Sunday is a brand new power for existence. It's a day-to-day reality, not a pie-in-the-sky hope for a future eternity, but it is a reality in this life right here, right now. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, the end of that verse is so we could live in newness of life. But far too often, we are Saturday Christians living, looking back at the crucifixion and completely believing and trusting in its cleansing, but not stepping into, in the day-to-day, the power of the resurrection that is for us just as much as the cleansing flood of the crucifixion. just as much for us right now as the cleansing power is right now. And so what Paul is saying here, the emphasis of this text, I believe, is that what He wants us to get at what he is wanting to drive into our understanding and for us to embrace in our hearts is a truth and a truth that will unlock the doorway for us to step into Sunday's experience. It is the truth that will enable us to move from being just Saturday Christians with a cleansed past into being living, vibrant Sunday Christians in which the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ flows on a regular basis. That's the goal 
of the text. That's the desire of the apostle, but more than that, that's the heart of the Father for you and me as Christians. He does not want us living in Saturday. He didn't save us to bring us to Saturday so that we would wait until glory. He saved us to usher us into Sunday's resurrection power. So let's look at verse 5 as we try to learn how we can begin to move and walk in that power. Paul writes in verse 5, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Touched on this verse last week, but what I want to show you singularly with this verse, very apparent, I'm sure, as we read it, it's a compound statement. It has two parts to it. Part A and Part B. And what I want to do is I want to give you an outline here on where we're going this week and next. It's an outline that is very calculated out from the logical, reasonable, powerful communicator, the Apostle Paul. What he does is he takes the first half of verse 5 the statement, we have been united with him in a death like his, and then he gives a commentary on it in verses 6 and 7. And when he's done with that, he takes the second half of verse 5, that we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his, and he gives a commentary on it in verses 8, 9, and 10. There's your outline for this week and next. This week, we're going to look at Paul's commentary on Romans 6, 5a as seen in Romans 6, 6, and 7. So here's verse 6. Paul writes that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. As we have looked at this doctrine of our union with Christ, our union with Him in His death. I talked about how Jesus Christ, when He stepped into this world, that what He did is He entered into a relationship to sin that He had never experienced in an eternal existence. That He, as the eternal God of glory, had lived in the realm of that majesty and glory, but that when he condescended to come down to earth, that what he did is he stepped into, for a period of time, a brand new realm. He stepped out of that realm of visible glory and majesty, and he subjected himself as a servant and stepped into a new realm. And what was that new realm? into the realm where sin reigned in death, this world. 
And as he did that, he took his divine nature and he married it with a human nature fully and completely so that when he entered into our realm, he did so comprehensively like we live in it. And he lived in the realm where sin reigned. Never had he done that. But then when he died, that relationship, that temporary relationship to sin that he entered into in order to save us, that relationship ended permanently for him once and forever. Never will he enter into that relationship again. He no longer is in the realm of sin, under the rule of sin, living in the domain or the dominion where sin is chief. He is outside of that, that ended at his death. And the point Paul is making here is that we were united with Christ in his crucifixion. And we died with him. And when that happened, he said we died to sin. Meaning, we don't live under the reign of sin anymore. If you're a believer, the dominion of sin over you has ended. You have a brand new realm in which you live. And in describing that here in verse 6, he makes three statements. Let me just read them one at a time there. We, and each one builds. The first one makes the second one possible. The second one makes the third one possible. Look at it, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Statement 1. And that statement makes statement two possible. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And that truth makes the third truth possible so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let's look at each one of those. First of all, we know that our old self was crucified with him. What does that mean? What does that mean? This phrase, our old self, is one that is widely debated, discussed in theological circles over, to, over the specific meaning. Let me give you one thing that it doesn't mean, and then I'll try to show you by context what it does mean. And folks, let me say this. It is so important that you understand that we're going really deep into doctrine here, and, you know, the quote, the Whoever they are, the church experts, growth experts say, you can't grow a church by preaching doctrine. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think doctrine, doctrine is what unleashes us into living. It's the point I'm going to try to make today. But the phrase, our old self, does not mean our sinful nature. This is not saying that when you put your faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ's death so that you died to sin, it does not mean that your sinful nature died. And I could sure illustrate that 
just with a truth right here, a question right here. Any believer here still struggle with sin? I asked you that last week, and the answer is yes. Why is that? It's because our sinful nature wasn't crucified with Christ. Our old self was crucified with Christ. Let me try to explain what that means. Here we're dealing with some hard concepts to understand, but oh, how critical they are that we understand them. This term old self or old man may be in your translation. The context, I believe, clearly tells us what that means. Context meaning, what has Paul been talking about? What is the subject matter that he is on? And here it is, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and following all the way up to the verse where we're at. The context is this. There was two men, Adam and Christ. And in our natural human self, we were born in Adam. We were born under sin. His sin made us guilty. We talked about that extensively. Adam's sin in the garden, his rebellion against the direct command of God, that Adam as our federal head, Scripture says, that in him we sinned when he sinned. That we were guilty in him when he sinned. And his guilt and his condemnation became ours and the curse became ours. And we were born with this sinful nature and we were born under sin's tyranny. And we were born under the rule and the realm of sin in bondage and enslaved to sin. Absolutely hopeless for us to do anything but live out that sin. That was our reality in Adam. But then Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, made it possible for us to be done with the old man. To become a brand new man or a brand new woman. So that we have a brand new existence, no longer under that tyranny of sin, no longer under sin's dominion, hopelessly enslaved, but now living a brand new existence. That is clearly the context here that points to the meaning of our old self. It is the old person. If you're a believer, your old self is the old person that you were, the old person that you were before you were saved. Ephesians chapter, let me read you two verses, other scriptures of Paul, that if you don't understand that correctly, Ephesians 4.22 and Galatians 5.24 are not going to make sense. Ephesians 4.22. Paul says, and you would initially think, well, sounds like he's contradicting here. Paul says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and, it's, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want you to notice something really critical in these two verses. In 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, the believer is commanded to do something. The believer is commanded to put off the old self. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, the commandment of Paul there is that the believer or the truth there is that the believer crucifies the flesh with its passions. Those things cannot possibly mean the same thing that Romans chapter 6 verse 6 means. Because in Romans 6 6, Paul is saying this dying to Christ, you didn't do any of that. That's not a work that you do. I mean, he has made that so clear all the way back from the beginning of the book in Romans chapter 1, 18 and forward. Your salvation, it is all of God and none of you. You didn't add to it. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You certainly didn't put off and crucify yourself. That was done to you by God. God the Father sent Jesus the Son to provide the basis through which that could happen. And God the Holy Spirit, when you put your faith in Christ, did that work. He, in you, as you believed in Christ, He baptized you. In that moment, He crucified you with Christ. That's not something you do. So this is certainly here not referring to you putting off what has already been crucified by God's Spirit. So what does it mean? It means that you would put off the characteristics of your former self. It is talking about this sinful nature that you as a believer still possess. You were made brand new. You were a body. You were a soul. You were a spirit. Your spirit was made brand new. Your soul was made brand new. But your body retained its sinful nature at salvation. And you are now living as a brand new person with a new spirit, with a new soul, seated with Christ spiritually in the heavenly realms, seen by Him as holy and righteous, even as His Son is, but you are living in this earth with a sinful nature. And what that sinful nature wants to do, what the enemy wants to do, is he wants to assert himself through that sinful nature in your life. He let me make another point really clear here because there are heresies that have sprung up in history because of a misunderstanding of this. Your flesh is not sin. Your flesh is neutral. It can either be used for God and good or used for the enemy and bad. So it's not inherent in the flesh that sin, I mean, sin is not actually defined by the flesh, but what sin does is it uses flesh as the vehicle. It uses flesh as the, the realm in which it seeks to get 
control and power. And what your flesh has is desires and passions and attributes that are natural, that are not bad, that are instincts. But what the enemy wants to do is he wants you to assert those, he wants to attempt you to assert those for sinful activity. And so what Ephesians 4.22 and Galatians 5.24 are saying, it's not telling you to crucify your old self. That's already crucified. That's already put off when you, in faith, trusted in Christ and were crucified with Him and died in that crucifixion to sin. But what you retained was a sinful nature that wants to assert itself and we can all say, wow, that is so true in my life. If we're a believer, that's me. That's me. And folks, isn't this really the overview of all of the challenge with Christianity? I mean, this is what we're trying to do all the time. We're trying to not allow this sinful nature that we retained even though we are a brand new person. We're trying not to allow that to assert itself and exercise its activities through the members of our flesh. But instead, we're trying, or we should be trying, to live in the resurrection power of Sunday morning that's available to us. So our old self is the old man that we once were in Adam and that if we have been saved, if we have been justified, that we are no longer. That old self has been put off permanently, eternally, just like Jesus will never enter into that relationship that he had with sin again. He has died to sin once for all. If we are his, we have died with him. We will never enter into that relationship with him again, with sin again. Now, that is a truth about our old self, but one more kind of nuance to that or look at that to try to make this even more clear. Paul here, maybe you, would, maybe you would just emphasize and say this. Pastor Brad, okay, I hear what you're saying, but as I look at my life, as I live with me, here's what I find out. It seems to me like my old self is still alive and well and asserting itself on a regular basis. I mean, in fact, maybe you'd say, Pastor Brad, the reality is that it seems like it really still not only is there, but has control because far too often it's calling the shots, it seems like, and I'm not. If that would be 
your testimony this morning, then, then what Paul is talking about here is so critical for you to understand because he is not talking about subjective reality. Here's what I mean by that. He is not basing the truth about what he is saying about your death in Christ, your death to sin. He is not saying that that is based upon whether or not you feel like it. He is not saying that you need to find out whether that's true of you by whether or not you see it in daily practice. He's not saying it is a subjective reality. What he is doing here is he is identifying objective truth. Truth that has nothing to do with how you feel or what you see when you look in the mirror or watch your life. He is saying there is a historical fact of history. And the fact of history is this. Jesus Christ entered into this realm and he died to sin. And that when you in faith trust in Christ, what the Spirit of God does is he enters you into union with Jesus Christ. And what that means is that you are crucified with Christ. Just like you sinned with Adam, even though you weren't literally there and you didn't literally uh, act out that sin, that you were so connected to him as your federal head that when he sinned, you sinned. And you got all the guilt and all the curse and all the condemnation and all the judgment. In the same way, when Jesus Christ died to sin and he fully paid for sin's penalty and he ended that relationship to sin, that if you put your faith in Christ, what happens in that moment is that you are united to him in his crucifixion and you die to sin just as it is a historical fact of history that he died on that cross 2,000 years ago. So did you. That's the truth that he is emphasizing here. It is an objective truth, not a subjection to experience, but an objective based upon the historical reality of who Christ is and what he did. So if you have put your faith in him, then what is Paul, then what Paul is saying about you is, listen, your old self is dead. It is dead never to rise again. It has been crucified. Not only crucified, it has been buried in the grave. And your relationship to that old self is done. Period. You have a brand new identity. You're a new citizen. You don't live under the rule and the realm and the reign of sin anymore. You're not under sin's dominion. You're not under sin's tyranny. You have a brand new existence. And the point then that Paul is making here, please get this. Please get this. It is so critical to you eventually coming into the Sunday experience of the resurrection. And it is this, 
The first key is you got to believe what God says about you is true. Hello, are you here? you got to believe what Paul says about you is true. And here is what he says, that if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, then you have fully, forever, completely died to sin. Eternal truth that you are never and no longer will you be associated with that old self and that you will never enter into that relationship with sin ever again, even as Christ will never enter that relationship ever again. That is your reality based upon the objective historical fact of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only when you understand that and really grasp it and believe it that you will be then positioned to step from the Friday, Saturday position into the Sunday experience of the power of the resurrection. It is that belief that will enable you to move into the subjective experience of what is already objectively true about you. That is why he is writing this. That's why he's saying, look, we know, we know, we know, and based upon what we know, we know, we know is this conclusion that here is who we are because God has said that is who we are so that we will then no longer offer the members of our body to sin. Do you see the progression there? That's the flow of this chapter, the first half of this chapter. His goal is holiness, but he can't get you there until you grasp the doctrine of who you are and what God says about you so that you don't live defeated and under a slave master who is no longer your master, who no longer has the reins of your life. He wants to lie to you and get you to believe he still does. But what defeats a lie? It's the truth. And what Paul is saying is, here's the truth. Believe what God has said about you. And what that truth will do is it will enable you to walk into the victory of Sunday's resurrection. In fact, folks, I saw this as I was preaching at the 9 o'clock service. You see, this is what Paul has been saying from his opening thesis in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. And his opening thesis was this, that the just shall live by what? By what? By faith. Do you see the connection? It is not until you believe the truth that you're going to live the truth. You got to first believe it. You got to grasp what God is saying about you and embrace it deeply so that you can live it daily. That is always the truth of God. It first has to come to you, to come to your mind and your heart 
and birth faith. And then when you believe it, then faith releases the power for you to live it. Does that make sense? Wow, three of you are on the page. I know this is deep stuff. Folks, this is deep stuff for me. I spent hours and hours and hours this week so that there wouldn't be a fog in the pulpit causing a mist in the pew, okay? Paul is so hammering on the doctrine of our unity with Christ here so that you would know what's true of you because it's in the knowing that you'll believe it and it's in that faith that the power of God will be unleashed for you to step from Saturdays looking back over your cleansing but staying away from the power and stepping into the power so that the experience, the subjective experience, lines up with the objective truth of history. The next statement here, statement two of verse six, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Do you see the outflow here? You got to know it so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now let's look at that term, the body of sin. What does that term mean? Oh, my word, is it really 20 after? Oh, my word. Ah. <sighs> I don't want to make five of you happy and happy and 200 mad. Uh, let me just do, let me fairly quickly here. The body of sin, I could give you verse after verse in Romans 6, 7, and 8 where he takes this term and uses it multiple times. It doesn't always look the same in English, but he's dealing with the very same concept. And every time it means the same thing. And I say that just to simply say this. If it means the same thing in every one of the other instances, it certainly means the same thing in Romans 6, 6. And here's what it means. It's talking about your literal fleshly body. The body of sin is this literal fleshly body that you are carrying around. And again, as I said earlier, that is not inherent sin in itself. It is just the seat of sin. It's where sin wants to express itself through your body. But look at what Paul says. Again, in order that the body of sin might be what? Say it, church, might be what? Brought to nothing. Let me explain that. Some of your translations might say, might be destroyed. Destroyed is not the right translation of that word. This is a far better translation, brought to nothing. Because here is what it means. It's still there, the body of sin, the sinful nature, but what has happened to you 
in your salvation, in your being united with Christ, is in order that that body of sin might be brought to nothing, might lose its effectiveness, might lose its power over you, might no longer be able to keep you under slavery and under bondage, that that is absolutely broken, that power is ended, it cannot do that anymore. And this statement, so that it would be brought to nothing, is not talking about a future thing that would happen. Paul is saying it's already happened, that that death took place so that the body of sin would be rendered ineffective in your life. The sinful nature is still there, but the truth of this statement in Romans 6 is that it doesn't have to have its way. It has been rendered ineffective. It has been brought to no account. The problem is we give it account. That's the problem. And one of the reasons, church, that we do that is because we think we're still the old self. Do you see the connection here? We think, well, I never could live right before. I mean, I know that I cannot subject my body to doing what is right. And so we believe that we're still the old man pre-salvation. And that belief paralyzes us. It makes us impotent and keeps us in Saturday instead of walking into Sunday's resurrection power. That's what happens. And what Paul is getting at here is don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. This body of sin has been rendered ineffective. It is of no account. It has been brought to nothing. You don't have to surrender to its will anymore. Oh, you still have it, and it's still a struggle, but you can win the victory because it's not just you. It's God in you. It's God in you. And God in you can win the day. God in you can call you fully into the resurrected experience of power just like Jesus Christ stepped into the resurrected experience of power. Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21. Just wrap it up here. That's why Paul says this in Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven. We have a new existence. We have a brand new existence. We're already there spiritually and in our soul. Our body is still here, but it's already our reality. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Folks, you see, that is the culmination of the Christian experience right there. That's when this fleshly nature is going to finally and eternally be eradicated. 
when it's no longer even going to be present. Right now it's present, but it's not raining. On the final day when Christ returns, the body of sin is going to be eradicated and we're going to live in glory with a new body, a glorified body. And there's going to be this completion of our adoption. Right now, it is already true. We are adopted as sons. We have a new spirit and a new soul, but we are still fighting with this sinful nature in our mortal body, but we are not fighting a losing battle, or we shouldn't be at least fighting a losing battle. Because there is an objective truth of history, and that objective truth is that we died with Christ, and we were buried with Him, and that body of sin, that old self, was buried, died and was buried. So that Paul is saying this, why do you want to live like you used to be? In essence, he's saying this, would you just be who you are? Don't be who you're not anymore. You don't have to. Don't be who you're not. Be who you are. And who you are is brand new. Who you are is dead to sin. No longer in that relationship. Then he puts an exclamation point on it in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, this makes the point of the Friday, Saturday, Sunday illustration. The, um, the entire goal and objective is for you to live in freedom. That's the purpose of your salvation. It's for you to live in freedom. Not in defeat. Not in failure after failure after failure, just waiting for the day when Jesus returns and this sinful nature is fully eradicated. Oh, folks, yes, we await that day and we should do so with incredible expectation, but we shouldn't live in Saturday saying, I got to stay here until he comes. We don't have to do that. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is to be ours so that we could walk in freedom. Freedom. Victory. It should be our subjective reality. And so, again, I know I'm being redundant, but listen, Paul is doing it over and over again. So blame him. The point is, the key for you to begin to move from that Saturday reality into the Sunday reality is that you would first understand the objective truth of who you are in Christ. And it's only when you grasp that and believe it, even if you don't fully understand it, I don't fully understand it, but Deeply believe it. Deeply embrace it. Then 
will the door be open. Then will the enablement come for you to begin to bring together objective truth with personal experience. Worship team, would you come? Oh, the Lord is teaching me so much, church. I hope he's teaching you. I'm. This is not anything about Brad Suter at all. I mean that. The Lord is, through this text, through this letter, he is, he is setting a banquet table before you of truth. Week in and week out. And he wants it to feed and nourish your soul so that it grows up in strength in that truth. But that'll only happen as you become a hearer and then a doer. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to spend time this week meditating on that truth. Looking at those scriptures about what God says about you as a believer. Because the believing leads to the living. And I would say, folks, there's even another nuance here, and that is it not, it's not just that it is possible it is that it is always a reality that true believing, true faith leads to action. So that if you look at your life and you say, you know what? I don't see any manifestation of this whatsoever. Then maybe what you need to do is you need to examine your heart and see if you're really saved. If you've been plodding around in the same place for years, hanging around truth, maybe you really haven't embraced it. Maybe you never have really believed because truly believing is gonna result in something. It's gonna have some fruit of repentance that shows. Some grow faster than others. Now, I'm not making any judgment because I don't know anybody's heart here. I don't even know my heart fully. Praise God that he reveals that. But if your experience is just no understanding of what I'm even talking about. Maybe you need to look at your own heart, see if you're saved. Because faith is going to lead. True faith is going to lead to something. It's going to be fruit. Please stand. Father, oh, Lord, I said too much. Uh, you take it. You use it for your glory and the 
good of these dear people, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.